All right, we're, we're looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 5. Praise the Lord, we got the gray hex back with us. God is good. Yes. And uh, so, uh, so the church votes, uh, Black Oak Heights Baptist, still, still the plan is for them to vote on November 19th as to whether or not we'll receive that building for free. Uh, with 170000 that would go into the, you know, reworking it. Uh, and uh, they let us use the building. We're using it this, we used it yesterday, next Saturday, and the core team will use it on Sunday the 19th. We'll actually be in the building borrowing it, using it, while they're voting on whether or not we'll have it. Uh, I went by the, the church, Black Oak Heights Baptist, to get the keys. They gave me the keys to the building. And uh, the secretary was very excited. Oh, I'm so excited about you guys getting this place. Uh, she says, we all are. We just want, we just want uh, what did you say? We just want the community to be reached with the gospel. And uh, so it really is uh, pretty amazing. So, but it's like I was saying to Jeremy, we're just going to pray it all the way through, though. Uh, yeah, it sounds like, I would say, I feel like maybe more than nine, 90% chance we'll get it. But uh, that doesn't make me, I mean, I woke up this morning, like, Lord, Please, do you see this all the way through? Would you give us this building for your glory? All right, so I'm still praying, praying it up, you know, uh, waiting on the Lord. Pastor Craig, Exciting. Is yeah. there a church building or buying another property, or is it going to be kind of a merge? No, there's no merge. Uh, this was a church uh, that had a congregation of 10 to 15 active members, and uh, they couldn't keep it going. The pastor had died, I don't know how long before, but he had pastored for 33 years. He died, and... They didn't see a path forward. Uh, so they approached Black Oak Baptist Church, said, can we give you our building and, and you guys maybe help us replant it or whatever. But then, and they, so they did it. But then the pastor at Black Oak Heights Baptist said, after evaluating uh, the people in the congregation, thought, we can't, we're just not a place to do it. We don't have the spiritual maturity, he told me. Uh, you know, we don't have the leaders to be able to go in there and do that. Uh, so then it was, okay, now what are we going to do? And uh, so then uh, the Lord brought us you know, to connect with them, and I told him who we were and where we were at in the stage of things, and he was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I think this is going to work, right? So then he talked with the trustees. I gave him the proposal. So uh, those 10 to 15 people that were absorbed into Black Oak Heights Baptist Church, I doubt they would, they would come be a part. Uh, they have been a part of Black Oak Heights Baptist since uh, mid-February, I think. So they're, you know, building relationships, they're getting plugged in, and, and he talks as though they, they're going to stay there. So they're now thinking of an outside group coming in. Uh, but, you know, would some come and join us? I wouldn't be surprised, but not like a merge. Uh, you know, there's no change in leadership or our plan. Uh, he says, we're not going to get in the way of what you guys are doing. I love what you guys are doing. You guys keep going, right? So... Pretty awesome. So uh, the attorney is working, he's drawn up the papers right now. We're supposed to get them soon. So that's what uh, I heard on Tuesday, uh, emailing back and forth with Pastor Todd. So, all right, well, let's read our text. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Uh, amazing uh, that the Lord coordinated uh, the sermon this morning. And uh, our text this morning, here. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a good idea. But no, this one, the Lord gets the credit for this one. Isn't that a, oh, that's a horrible thing. That was a joke. <laughs> but no one, no one laughed, so <laughs> better clarify. Yeah, you did, good. Yeah, the Lord, the Lord scheduled this. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is, this is Holy Scripture. Uh, God in His love says to us, here. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for what you've done in the Greyhack's life. Thank you for preserving Mike, uh, for sustaining them both uh, spiritually. Uh, I'm sure you have used this trial to strengthen their faith in you and their joy in you as they see your provision for them, their, your protection over them, as they've been able to enjoy the love of your people surrounding them, uh, just in so many ways, tasting your, your goodness, your kindness. And all of that, uh, all that kindness was purchased for them at Calvary when the Good Shepherd laid down his life in their place, took their punishment and their judgment, and in return gave them all, every blessing in Christ. So, Lord, we, we thank you for your protection of them. We thank you for hearing our prayers, uh, for answering. Thank you that they're back with us, and we can all rejoice together in your goodness. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would uh, uh, provide for your people uh, when it comes to space and buildings. We pray for grace. It was announced this morning that uh, uh, the invitation is going to be given for all the members of the body to give, and, uh, and ultimately you provide through your people as you strengthen their faith. Give them joy in you so that they love to give and even selflessly, sacrificially give because they, they see your glory and they love you and they love your work and they want the gospel to go forward. And so I pray that you would uh, stir up your people to, um, to enjoy that blessing of sacrificial giving. And I pray that through your people that you would uh, provide and that you would grant, uh, you give this property and that the church would be well on their way with building. And uh, we, we wait on you and we thank you that you are a wonderful provider. Your timing is impeccable. And so we trust you. And, um, and Lord, we pray for this other building uh, that Black Oak Heights Baptist has taken possession of and it seems as though you're giving it now to us. It seems that way. That's all the signs seem to point that direction, but it's not done until it's done. And so, Lord, we, we wait on you for this. And, we, and, and even if you don't give us this building, you have reminded us that we ought to pray for big things for your glory, uh, not, not having a limited view of, of what you're capable of. Uh, so we, we just thank you for, in a sense, flexing to show us your strength in this. You make these kinds of arrangements, uh, and it's no trouble for you. you give us, you've given us uh, favor in their sight, uh, the trustees and the, the pastor and others, uh, even the secretary. Uh, you pave the way for us um, as your sovereign. And so, Lord, we, we, just, uh, we, we long for a building where we can meet, uh, where we can glory in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and where we can uh, reach out to lost people with the gospel. So uh, please, uh, if, it would be, if it be your will, if it would please you, give us that building, even for the sake of your name. And now as we look to this text, uh, Lord, we thank you for it. And we thank you uh, indeed for how you coordinate uh, everything in our lives, including Ron's preaching this morning from John 10 as we got to glory in uh, Jesus as our good shepherd who has laid down his life in our place. And now you have a word for us concerning under-shepherds. Uh, and it's uh, more of your love and blessing uh, announced to us. And so may we receive your word with uh, clear understanding of it and with uh, delight in it, um, expecting great things, that you would feed us, that you would shape us and make us... Um, to more, even more brilliantly display your glory as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again and again throughout Scripture, we're referred to as sheep, and it's really a delightful thing that we are referred to as sheep. And that's the implication for everything we looked at this morning, right? In John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. That means we're all sheep. Uh, we're all sheep. We all need shepherding. And uh, Philip Keller, that's... Uh, you know, Ron referred to him this morning. He wrote that book, 
a shepherd's look at Psalm 23, and he's written some other things too, which are really helpful. I really appreciate it. Uh, Philip Keller said uh, this. See, I already planned to quote him. Isn't that amazing? We got a quote from, you probably never heard a quote from Philip Keller before, not year two. So it's awesome. Philip Keller said, it's no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require, more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. And he knows all about that, right? Because he cares for sheep. And so, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, we're, there's no, uh, it's no surprise that we're referred to as sheep in Scripture. And we are to think of ourselves as sheep. Uh, he goes on to describe... Uh, He says, while most animals have an amazing ability to find their way home, sheep can't. Left to themselves, sheep will indiscriminately eat both healthy and poisonous plants. They will also overgraze and ruin their own pasture. Sheep's wool secretes a large volume of oily lanolin that permeates their fleece. Consequently, they can get really dirty because all kinds of things stick to them and they have no way to clean themselves. He also says this, they are naturally passive and virtually defenseless against predators. When attacked, their only resource is to flee in panic. So is it any wonder that God refers to us as sheep? It's no accident. We need shepherding. That's the point. We weren't created to function independently, on our own, in our own strength. You weren't created that way. Even in the garden, we, uh, Adam and Eve, they were created to be uh, revelation receivers. They were dependent on what God said. They, can't, they weren't made. They didn't, God didn't take all the knowledge that they needed and deposit it into their brains or into their hearts and say, you're good now, go. He didn't give them everything. He made them constantly, continuously dependent on his word. Well, we're dependent on, on, on shepherding for everything. Uh, all of us need shepherding. Even the shepherds of God's people need shepherding, right? Uh, Jesus is our chief shepherd, as we saw just in this reading of this text. And we saw this morning, of course, in John 10. But in addition to Christ, it is God's will that we be shepherded by elders, uh, men, even sinful men, appointed ultimately by God to shepherd us. And I believe a plurality is important because every individual shepherd needs to be shepherded by his fellow shepherds, right? And it's a scary situation for a man to be thought of in, or to think of himself as the sole shepherd of the flock. It's in a dangerous position because he too is a sheep, just like I described, or Philip Keller described. So, uh, so we need to be shepherded. Unfortunately, though, in many cases, God's sheep don't want to be shepherded. Some don't like authority, no matter who it is. They don't like authority, and so they reject shepherding. Uh, some aren't convinced they need to be shepherded, and they'll avoid church or just visit church you know, gatherings, but have no intention of actually being shepherded. Their idea of church is just to come and listen, to receive whatever they, the amount of teaching they think that they need, to participate in the amount of activities they think that they need, but they have no thought of, I need to be shepherded. And so I want to make sure the shepherds of this flock count me in and shepherd me. Uh, there are many who, who know they need to be shepherded and they desire it, but they are reluctant to let it happen oftentimes because of bad experiences in the past with unbiblical shepherding, with unfaithful shepherds. I can't tell you how many I found like that at at Grace, uh, where God has brought them through some very difficult experiences in past churches where the shepherds were not faithful. Um, They did not imitate Christ. They did not love the flock like Christ, the chief shepherd, wants them to do. And Peter understands the importance of shepherding as he writes this. He knows that those in the household of God, those in the household of God will undergo judgment from God 
That was the last week's text, right? And what I mean is that the, the, the judgment of God is, is His discerning work where He disciplines His children that they might share in His holiness. That's what I mean by judgment. Not judging to pour out His wrath on them, right? Not condemnation, but that disciplining, that loving discipline. He knows that, that they'll experience that in the form of persecution from lost people. Um, and so He knows that, that they, this, these flocks... These believers to whom he's writing, they need faithful shepherds. Uh, Peter has just finished giving a few final exhortations about suffering. It's a sobering thought. Suffering is part of God's plan for his people. And so, of course, he's not going to wrap up this letter without speaking to the shepherds. You make sure that you shepherd God's people the way they need. He has compassion for his readers. And it's not just his compassion, right? The beauty of inspiration is that this is God's compassion for His people. When He tells your leaders what they need to be, you listen because He's telling you how much He cares for you and how much He loves you and wants to provide for you. Peter, Peter knew how difficult it can be to, to come to grips with the place of suffering. He wasn't always so quick to grasp the plan. Right? Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, God, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. It's hard to encounter suffering and to think of suffering the way that God tells us it is as part of His plan for us. We have a hard time embracing that. Even after we're told, we, we sometimes just want to immediately resist. Yes, I know suffering is supposed to play that role in my life, but I don't want it. Right? And we complain in our hearts and we oppose it, just like Peter did, directly opposing what Jesus said. Peter's perspective by this point obviously had changed. And he, he's counseling. He, he's already in this book been counseling his readers to not be like him. Don't push back away from this suffering as, uh, uh, in God's plan for you. No, this, is, this means blessing for you. He's continually said, right? Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So Peter knew it would be difficult to embrace God and the suffering that he sends. And we all know Peter and how he denied Christ three times. He's famous for it, right? But now he says, 1 Peter 3.15, Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. So Peter's counsel in this book would be difficult to receive. And Peter was sympathetic. His Lord had been patient with him, and his Lord had restored him. John 21, 15 through 17, you remember how, what it was like when Jesus restored Peter? Jesus said to Simon Peter, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, tend my sheep. And so Peter would be a good, sympathetic, compassionate shepherd. He was following in the footsteps of his Lord. I'm sure Peter remembered the day, talked about in Mark 6.34, when Jesus went ashore, saw a large crowd, and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Peter saw Jesus' compassion, had a front row seat to Jesus' compassion. And Peter knew the need for a shepherd, and he knew the sheep would struggle with this hard truth and with the hard suffering. And no doubt his heart was just aching for these people. He didn't want the people to make the same mistakes he made. And so he wanted them to be equipped, to be ready, to hope in Christ but he knew they needed good shepherds. And so we're not surprised at all when Peter says 
In our text, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, or so then, I exhort the elders among you. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. And so he gives counsel, directives to the shepherds of the sheep in this text. Three directives for shepherds of sheep. But he's got a specific focus in mind. Directives for shepherds of sheep who will suffer. Which uh, is every single congregation, right? That's the reality of the Christian life. So I exhort... Uh, that an exhortation is similar to a command. It's not the same as a command, though. The tone is slightly different. Exhortation is, is heavier on the side of motivating, trying to move them to action. There's a little more emotion involved. So he's exhorting uh, the, the elders. I exhort the elders. A uh, few basic facts about elders. I think we're all pretty familiar with elders and how they function in the church, but the churches were led by elders, and Peter doesn't have to direct them to appoint elders, he assumes that all these believers scattered around different parts of Asia Minor, they all had elders, and they all had a plurality of elders. He assumes that when he gives this instruction. Uh, this was God's plan for His people, that, there would be, uh, they would, that God's people would be gathered together in little flocks and local churches, and they would have shepherds. They would have elders over them. That terminology, elder, is used, um, and uh, generally that's the terminology that's used when speaking to uh, churches that had Jewish, made up of Jewish believers, uh, when, when elders were appointed, like in, in Jerusalem Community Church, I don't know if it was actually called that, but maybe, uh, they, they were referring to them as elders, and whenever there was Jewish people, they would call them elders. But when Paul went and appointed elders in various churches, they, the, the terminology of elder wasn't normally used, it was overseer. It was overseer, which sometimes is translated as bishop, right, in older translations. Uh, why the difference in terminology? It's not different ways of organizing church leadership, uh, but it's uh, talking to Jewish people. They were familiar with the concept of the elders leading the people. They were the ones in charge. They were the ones that would give an account to God for their leadership of the people. So they're referred to as, as elders. Uh, so I don't think it, the primary emphasis is on the fact that they need to be older. Uh, yeah, the elders of Israel were older, but uh, generally speaking, but it wasn't that. Uh, that's the, the, the specific meaning of the, of the word when it's used to speak of church elders, but the fact that just like Israel had leaders, so the church has leaders, men appointed to lead. Uh, but then Paul, when using the word overseer with Gentiles, it was really saying, he's talking about a boss, a manager. That's how they refer to the people in charge, uh, the ones that oversee. Well, how do we know uh, that uh, elders are the same as overseers? And we can say, well, they're talking to churches, leaders are appointed, they got different names. Maybe they were organized differently. But no, this, that's why this, one of the reasons why this text is significant, because those two terms are put together, right? I exhort, in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing. There's that word, overseeing. It's, it's the same as an overseer, but it's in the verb form. So it's the same word. So the elders were supposed to oversee. Um, another key text is Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, uh, where those terms are used in conjunction with one another. Uh, and, of course, you've got the other word for pastor, which is the least, common, least commonly used word for New Testament church leaders uh, in the Scriptures. Uh, the noun form is only used in one text, and that's Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, where uh, Paul says, God gave to, or Christ gave to the church, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? And it lists pastors there, a noun there's the leaders of the church. Uh, again, we'd ask, well, maybe, maybe there's pastors that lead the church, and maybe there's another group of elders that lead in the church, and then another group of, of uh, what I leave out? What did I say first? Pastors, elders, overseers? <laughs> oh, whatever. Maybe I said it wrong the first time. All three of them. Maybe, maybe, there's like, uh, maybe it's like the, the House of Representatives and... Uh, you know, you got the president, you got the vice president. Maybe there's different levels of government. No, it doesn't work that way because Peter, when he writes to him, says he uses all three terms here. 
So this is a really important text. I exhort the elders, verse 2, shepherd or pastor. Uh, so it's the uh, verb form of the word that's translated as shepherd or pastor. Um, and then there's to oversee, not under compulsion. They're to oversee. So using so the one, who are the ones that are supposed to oversee and the ones that are the pastor? They are the elders, right? And uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul refers to the elders uh, at Ephesus, and he says that God has made them overseers and uses the noun form. So the overseers are the same as the elders, and they're both they're all to do the work. The same ways are referring to this same group of people. Different ways are referring to the same group of people, and their work is to pastor and to oversee. And I guess you can make a verb form out of elder. They're to elder. Um, sometimes we use it that way, don't we? Maybe not. Do you ever say our, our elders elder? Never. Never. Okay. Scratch that. It wouldn't make any sense. All right. Uh, so, uh, so he's speaking to the church leaders. Call them elders, call them overseers, call them pastors, all the same. Uh, and uh, it's, there's to be a plurality there to lead the church. So those are the basics of elders uh, and eldering. There, I did it anyway. Uh, I, I do it that way sometimes. So maybe I was just... Respect your elders. But that's still a noun form. Respect their eldering? Uh, yeah, you're like, I don't know. I'll respect them as elders, but... So Peter is exhorting them, perhaps with tears streaming down his face. Right? I, I, I picture that. Because, because of all the hard things he's told him throughout this book, because of all of his past experience needing a, a faithful shepherd to lead him through suffering. He's so sobered by this. This is of utmost importance to him. Uh, and, so he's, and he doesn't just say, this is what I want you to do. I exhort you. I'm, calling, I'm pleading with you to do this, to be this way, shepherds. So here are the three directives. Here's the first one. Number one, he says in verse 1, remember that your path to glory is a path of suffering. Remember that your path to glory is a path of suffering. So, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He's going to say shepherd, right? But on the way to saying, I want you to shepherd, I plead with you to shepherd, he's reminding them. It's helping them to remember that their path to glory is a path of suffering. Think this way, shepherds, when you engage in this work. Remember, the path to glory is a path of suffering, even for you. Uh, Peter says three things about himself for the benefit of the elders that he's addressing. All three things speak of what Peter has in common with the elders to whom he's speaking. He says, first, that he's a fellow elder. A fellow elder. Uh, it may seem a bit strange that Peter calls himself an elder. I, I, it seems to me that's strange, because he's an apostle. I think it would be natural to say, I'm an apostle. As an apostle, I want to tell you this. But he doesn't say that. Um, he's saying, as a fellow elder, I want to tell you this. Uh, he skips over the greater role that he had and went to a seemingly lesser role to have an elder. It's not his humility, I don't think, that motivates him to do this. Uh, it's not as though he wants us to forget that he is an apostle because he did mention his apostleship at the beginning of the letter. Uh, no, I think he does it to identify himself with the elders that he's speaking to, that he's exhorting. Highlighting his, the difference that he had with the church elders wouldn't be helpful at this point. It's more helpful to highlight his similarity to them. Uh, in what sense is Peter an elder? Well, he was a shepherd of God's people. We saw Jesus called him to that, right? Shepherd my people, John 21. Uh, and he had served as an elder at the church in Jerusalem. He's one of the elders. So he calls himself a fellow elder. Second, he calls himself a fellow witness a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. Uh, a witness could have been an eyewitness. Apostles of Christ, of Jesus Christ, uh, you remember that one of, the, one of the qualifications for being an apostle was that they had to be an eyewitness of Christ. They had to know Him and be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And so they were a witness of Christ in a very specific way that not everyone else could be. 
Um, and as an apostle, Peter was an eyewitness of Christ, an official representative of Christ, ready to give an eyewitness account. But I don't think that's what Peter has in mind here. His point, once again, is not to distance himself from the elders that he is exhorting. He's instead identifying with them. That's why he uses that fellow terminology. Uh, it might be like um, the president calling himself a businessman when speaking to a, a bunch of businessmen. He wants to identify. Yes, you remember that I am president, but I'm also a businessman. I can relate, right? And I think that's what Peter's doing here. So the word witness uh, doesn't only refer to an eyewitness like being an eyewitness of Christ, but it has a wider uh, range of meaning. The word witness can also speak of someone who simply brings a message or someone who testifies. Uh, Peter used this word earlier in the letter, uh, and, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. He spoke of uh, the Spirit of Christ within, within them, uh, and that them is refer- referenced to the Old Testament prophets. The Spirit of Christ within the Old Testament prophets was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The word predicting there reference to the Old Testament prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ. That word predicting is the word from our text, witness, with a prefix added onto it. The Holy Spirit, through the Old Testament prophets, pro-witnessed or pre-witnessed the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Old Testament prophets witnessed beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. Now, uh, Peter and his fellow elders don't witness beforehand you know, witnessed the sufferings of Christ beforehand. They're after the fact. They just witnessed to the sufferings of Christ. So, uh, Peter says three things about himself in this verse, but the first two are tied together. In the Greek, you can do this when you use two nouns with one article, linking them together. So, Peter's saying he's a, a fellow elder and fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is what an elder is, in other words. Uh, you don't get to be one of these. You're, a, you're an elder, and that makes you a witness of the sufferings of Christ. That's what an elder is. He says, let me tell you about the sufferings of Christ, which is the gospel, right? I love that description of an elder, a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Um, but Peter has more in mind than, than these things, I think. Uh, the word for witness is, is martis, from which we get our word martyr. The word martyrs sometimes uh, communicated this idea of being a martyr. Um, we know why the Greek word for witness became our word martyr, too, because it's one's witness of the sufferings of Christ that was often the means by which he came to share in the sufferings of Christ. As he boldly proclaimed the gospel, he was killed for it. Um, and, and, and this, I think, is what... Peter has in mind. That's been Peter's thrust in all the verses that have come before. And so elders aren't ones that simply proclaim the sufferings of Christ, but they do so with the expectation that they could very well suffer for it and even die for it. Uh, So an elder ought to be one who is courageous, one who is bold, Not courageous because of strength within, right? Obviously, because of his Savior. Um, So he's a fellow elder and a fellow witness. And then third, uh, he's a fellow sharer of the glory that is to be revealed. He's a fellow sharer of the glory that is to be revealed. And by the way, this is another reason uh, it's kind of gives support for that idea that, that witness, that word witness should be taken as martyr or as one who suffers for the sake of Christ uh, because the next description fellow share of the glory that's revealed uh, uh, seems to have reference to that suffering. There will be a revelation of glory at the coming of Christ. We've talked about this a number of times going through this little letter, haven't we? Peter oftentimes is mindful of that day when Jesus in all of his glory is revealed to us. He thinks about that quite a bit. and He wants us to think about that a lot. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, he talked about it more recently than that, though, in chapter 4, verse 13. To the degree you are sharing, in the, uh, the sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, 
you may rejoice with exaltation. Uh, rejoicing with exaltation. I think that probably means that we are... Have you ever seen someone so happy that he's literally running around and jumping with joy? We don't see that very much, do we? I think that's what this means. Rejoicing with exaltation. That's what you'll be doing one day. You won't be able to contain your joy. You, some of, I don't know if you guys dance. I don't. I can't. But I think I'm going to be trying to. It'll probably look really funny because I'm not very coordinated that way. But this, these uh, words that Peter uses are the words that are used. He stacks up verbs and uses particular words for joy that are translated in the New Testament uh, to describe like uh, a lame man who's healed. And so he gets up and runs around and leaps for joy. Right? It's not metaphorical, in other words. That's what happened at that. I mean, can you imagine? He's never walked before. And Jesus comes, or Peter comes and heals him. He's not just going to get up and, yeah, this is nice. I like this, you know? Yeah, this is really solid, you know? No. And that's not the way the text describes it. He's running around. People are like, what is going on with this guy? Well, they all knew, though. How, how is this possible? This was the guy that was lame. He used to sit out in front of the temple every day asking for stuff. We got tired of this guy. Now look at him, right? Such joy. So <laughs> that day of revelation, when we see his glory, uh, the greatest joy that we have ever experienced. So Peter has us thinking about that day. It'll be revealed. Uh, and the glory is something that we'll share in. We'll receive praise, glory, and honor with Revelation because of what He has done in our lives. It'll be grace upon grace, right? He strengthened us by His grace, enabled us to live lives of faithfulness. And then He rewards us. How is this possible? He rewards us for what we've done. We don't deserve anything. Well, He has, he has strengthened us to do those things. And so we'll share in that glory. And so we have our hope fixed on that day when we partake in that glory. But Peter says he is a sharer in that future glory. He says he's a sharer in that future glory right now, which, again, we're not surprised by. He keeps saying things like this. He keeps referring to that revelation of Jesus Christ. But like in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, uh, fix your hope on the grace that is being brought to you. He speaks, uses a present tense participle to describe how we're receiving that right now. Peter always is thinking about this future glory, Yes, that's ultimate, that's perfect, doesn't get better than that, but I'm, I'm experiencing some of that right now, tasting it right now. And even again, he does that. I'm sharing in that future glory. I'm a fellow sharer. He's reminding the elders, you guys are getting this too. Uh, so Peter says he's a fellow elder, a fellow sufferer, and a fellow taster of heavenly glory. And then he exhorts the elders. So why does he say these things before exhorting the elders? Well, I think he wanted to identify with the elders. Uh, he wanted to encourage the elders. There's encouragement built into those things, right? Uh, you aren't alone. I'm a fellow elder. Uh, and uh, I think he's also reminding them of their role. The president might say, as a fellow businessman, I must discipline myself to get up at 4.30 a.m. every day too, right? Why would he say that? In part to say, you guys should be getting up at 4.30 a.m. if you want to do well, right? And so that's kind of what Peter's doing too. You fellow elders, some of them are probably like, I don't like all this suffering. They had a little bad attitude, you know? They had lost perspective. And he said, I'm a fellow elder and a fellow sufferer and a fellow sharer in glory. And like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a fellow taster of glory. And the suffering is part of God's plan for me, right? He's reminded of that. So he's, Peter's like indirectly uh, encouraging him. And this is part of the way in which we see his, this is wisdom in communication, wisdom in calling people to action. As you identify with them and you almost in indirect ways encourage them. Uh, 
I, I find it in there a lesson for shepherding. When I shepherd people, how do I, how do I encourage people and motivate them? There's so many different ways to do it. And uh, God gives you, uh, helps you in skill uh, with this passage. Um, and he's also reminding them of their identification with Christ. It was rich and rewarding uh, when he, when he says he's a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Uh, they share in Christ's sufferings and they share in his glory. Uh, you're, you're, you are glued together with Christ, right? Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So they're just reminded that they're so blessed. Uh, so, so I'm reminded, I'm encouraged by it uh, as, as a pastor. This is, this is my path. Uh, and God will expect me to lead others in this path. Uh, and so I say to myself after this text, uh, Craig, don't be surprised if you have to suffer. Don't ever say, why, why, if I'm being faithful, why would I have to suffer? Craig, don't say that. That's foolish. This is the plan. Um, and, I, and I say that to every young buck, <laughs> young uh, pastor in training. This is not, you're not pursuing a life of ease. This is not for fun. This is, you are signing up to share the sufferings of Christ. You share in the suffering and you share in the glory. And it's awesome. There's nothing better than that. But don't be surprised if, if goats are opposed to your ministry. And don't be surprised if the sheep bite. Don't be surprised. What do you think you're signing up for? What happened to your, your shepherd? He went to the cross, and he said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer. Well, you're, you're following in his footsteps. Um, so I am gently reminded here that I should not complain, but instead I should rejoice when I am, like Peter said in Acts, when I'm counted worthy to suffer for his sake. I am blessed. And, uh, okay, so that's how I apply it to myself. That's how I encourage elders to apply it. But to you all, I would say, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. This is what they are called to. Pray that they are sobered by this, that they embrace this. Pray that God strengthens them not to count, not to complain in their suffering, but to rejoice because they're being blessed. Pray for them. Encourage them. Encourage them with this truth. Um, they do suffer. I guarantee you, they suffer, but they're not complainers. I know the elders at Grace, they are not complainers, right? But they, but they do suffer in various ways. So they need you to support them in prayer and encourage them and thank them for their work. And they might even play it down and say it's not that much work. Again, it's because of their character, because they're not obsessed with all their problems. But don't let that dissuade you from praying for people. Sometimes we don't pray for people unless we see, see their desperation, right? But, that doesn't, but if you can't see their desperation, it doesn't mean there's no need to pray for them. I mean, look at this, what Peter says to them, and pray for them. So remember that your path to glory is a path of suffering. That's the first directive to shepherds of sheep who will suffer. Second, oh my goodness, time is flying. Number two, shepherd God's sheep in a way that pleases God. Shepherd God's sheep in a way that pleases God. So verse two, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing, not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. All right, so the flock of God, shepherd the flock of God. There's a little subtle reminder these sheep that you watch over, they're not your sheep. They're God's sheep. So you be careful how you treat them. You be careful how you shepherd them. They're His. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul gave that same reminder to the elders at Ephesus. Uh, he speaks of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Let me just remind you how precious these people are to him. He purchased them with his own blood. It also uh, really affirms the deity of Christ. Uh, in that little verse, Acts 20, 28, that God purchased the church with His own blood. Does God have blood? 
Yes, he does in the person of Christ, right? It's a really, really neat, neat verse to share with, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever that deny the deity of Christ. Um, so I'm reminded this is this is not my church. This is this is not the elders' church. When we get together as elders and meet together and strategize about how we can shepherd the flock, we don't get to just decide to do decide what we want to do in the church. These are his sheep. These are not our sheep. Right? We've we got to keep that in mind. Um, they're owned by him. They're precious to him. Uh, so what is the work of a shepherd? Uh, he says, shepherd the flock of God. And he's going to spend most of the time talking about the way that they do that, that pleases God. But what is this work of shepherding? Let me just run through a few things quickly, all from the book, The Minister as Shepherd by Charles Jefferson, not Thomas Jefferson, Charles Jefferson. Uh, the minister as shepherd. He lists seven things that are involved in this work of shepherding. And I love this description. Uh, first, a shepherd is a watchman. His home is to be a tower, he says. His home is to be a tower. Climb up in that tower and you stay there and you look down on the flock and you watch over them. You're a watchman. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, Be on guard, right, to the elders at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing, and there's going to be wolves in wolves' clothing. And it's your job as a shepherd to watch them, watch for them. A watchman. And then he says, uh, not only does he watch, he guards. He's not only to see the danger, but to protect the sheep. Right? Jefferson says, the losses of the average church are appalling. And the one reason is that life is not properly protected. The shepherd has no, has no genius for constructing sheepfolds, which will keep out the wolves. He does not seem to know that it is his duty to devise means and measures for meeting and overcoming the hostile forces which are forever making warfare on the church of Christ. So the, the shepherd is to guard. And he's to guide. A third thing, he's to guide. As sheep are not independent travelers. The, the greenest pasture may be only a few miles away, but the sheep left to themselves cannot find it. They are to guide. And... They are to be physicians, or the shepherd is to be a physician. Sheep get hurt. They cut themselves. Their feet get sore. They break their legs. They fall. And so a shepherd is an agent of healing. He's to be a savior, is the next thing he lists, a savior. He saves sheep who are lost. This is, this is rescue work. There are those sheep that, that leave the rest of the flock, and the good shepherd, who is like the good shepherd will go out and get that wandering sheep and bring him back. Uh, boy, I know of so many shepherds that don't do that. Uh, they like to focus on the ones that are easy. Um, I can tell you, when I go through this list, I was just thinking about the elders at Grace, and I'm so thankful. And you ought to rejoice and be glad because you, my brothers and sisters, have faithful shepherds that do this work. Uh, they are physicians. Many of you probably know that by personal experience, you know, firsthand. Even if you don't, you probably know of others that can testify of it. That's just God's undeserved favor toward those men and His undeserved favor towards you, that He has given you leaders like that. A shepherd also, he says, feeds the sheep. He teaches. We know, we know the sheep here at Grace are well-fed sheep, kind of fat sheep, I guess, maybe. Uh, no, that doesn't mean, I don't mean it's an insult, though. <laughs> and he loves the sheep. A shepherd loves the sheep. He loves the sheep so much that in times of danger, he doesn't think of himself, but of his sheep. Sacrifices for them. Okay, so he says, shepherd the flock of God, overseeing the flock, or some translations say exercising oversight, and it further defines or explains the shepherding. And it means that he accepts a shepherd when he's overseeing. He accepts responsibility for the care of someone else. That's what a shepherd does. He oversees. 
meaning that he accepts responsibility for the care of someone else. It's alluded to in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. They oversee you as those who will give an account, right? Because they accept responsibility for the care of those souls, of your soul. That's what the elders have done for you. So then he goes on to give three characteristics of shepherding that pleases God. Number one, an elder must shepherd gladly and passionately. He must shepherd gladly and passionately. He says in verse 2, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly, right? Or voluntarily, some have, according to God or according to the will of God. He does, it, he does this work not because he has to, not because, well, someone has to. We don't have that many pastors. We've got to have more, so I guess I'll do it. No. He desires it in his heart. Um, the leaders of a church, of a church that's suffering, those leaders must be compelled internally, not externally. Second, an elder must shepherd with a selfless love for the people. An elder must shepherd with a selfless love for the people. The end of verse 2, he says, not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. Not for dishonest or shameful greed. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, Peter talks about the heart of greed that motivates false prophets and false teachers. In their greed, they will exploit you, he says, with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So he says to these fellow elders, don't have a heart of selfishness or greed. Don't be in it for what you can get, but for what you can give. Money and personal gain are evil, wicked motives. And Jesus uh, talks about this, and perhaps Peter had this in mind when he said it. John 10, 12 and 13, which we read this morning. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. So Jesus is the chief shepherd and he's the good shepherd and he loves his sheep. And he says, if you're going to be an under-shepherd, God's people, then you must love the sheep. John Calvin said, Christ is so anxious for his sheep's salvation that he does not even spare his own life. It's awesome. Number three, an elder must shepherd as a humble example of godliness. An elder must shepherd as a humble example of godliness. He says in verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. He speaks of those that have been allotted to them or entrusted to them. It's like God has taking, taken a precious commodity and put it into the care of these men. That's an amazing, that's an amazing reality. Uh, they, they're reminded of the great treasure that's been entrusted to them. Um, and, and really, it's a fearful thing, because with that entrusting comes accountability. So Peter warns them not to lord it over them. He's not saying that there is to be no authority. Um, no, he's talking about the attitude that they would have. Don't lord it over them. Don't be harsh. Don't be domineering. Don't be heavy-handed. Don't rule with threats. Leadership in the church consists not of driving people by force, but leading people by example. I imagine that Peter had in mind Jesus' words in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them, his disciples, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, church family, what can you do? 
Again, you can pray for your shepherds to be this way. Um, I, I would add, too, that I believe there's a place for accountability. I see, again, I, when I think of the elders at Grace, my time spent with them personally, in elders' meetings with them, seeing their lives, teaching, discipling others, uh, seeing tears in their eyes when they consider members of the body. <laughs> I just, I see this in their lives, and I, and I give thanks. Um, yet, they're still sinners. They're still but men. So they need to be upheld by, in, in prayer. But, if, but even an elder who has been faithful for years can be faced with a barrage of attacks, with, with times of suffering, that where he feels nearly crushed, where he feels weary. And so he can sometimes lose that motivation that, that Peter says you should have. Because he, he shifts his eyes, right? Every elder does this. We lose sight of the glory of Christ and our calling and the, the love for the sheep. And there's always repentance and confession and coming back. But encouragements from the body can help that. And maybe accountability. If you see a pattern that develops. It's, on, it's partly, when you read, read a text like this, the first layer of responsibility is on the elders, Right? He's talking directly to them. But God doesn't give a, a letter to elders and then exclude you from knowledge of that. He gives it to you. He wants you to overhear. Why? Because as members of the body, you're responsible to help make sure this happens. So prayer, encouragements, and maybe at times saying, you know, I've seen maybe the way you talked to this person, and, it, and it's not just once but multiple times, and I'm concerned. Maybe I'm misreading it, right? You go in humbly, humbly, prayerfully, right? But you don't do nothing. Uh, my, I don't anticipate this happening very much, partly because you got the rest of the faithful shepherds who are going to be doing that first, right? And there's going to be correction. Every team of elders will have that. They correct one another. And uh, that's a healthy functioning uh, team of elders. But yet there is a, le a level of responsibility for all of us. The last directive for shepherds of sheep who will suffer, right? So first was remember that your path to glory is a path of suffering. Elder, remember that. Number two, shepherd God's sheep in a way that pleases God. And now number three, be motivated by a desire to please and glorify Christ. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Once again, helping him to keep the end in view, to think eschatologically, think about these last things. Also reminding him, you've got a chief shepherd. You have a boss, and he's coming. So think about what pleases him. When shepherds forget about the eternal and the imperishable, the sheep are in trouble. That's another way to pray for your leaders. Pray that they don't forget about the eternal and the imperishable. When the shepherds want a reputation on earth and and gold which perishes, the sheep are in trouble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for our good shepherd. Lord Jesus, you are our good shepherd. You love us. You watch over us. You protect us. You save us. You are a physician. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, you, you have a plan for your people to be shepherded. I thank you for the elders at Grace who have a biblical understanding of what you've called them to, which is, it seems, so uncommon in churches today. And so you've blessed them. And so you've blessed this, our congregation. And we thank you for your, your grace and undeserved favor toward us in Christ. We ask that you would strengthen these men to be faithful. Um, help them to keep their eyes on the chief shepherd. Help them to keep their eyes on eternal rewards. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege you've given me of pastoring your people and for the privilege of leading this church plant. 
I thank you for providing Tyler and Jim to serve together with me, and I pray that you would make us faithful. Help us to be faithful under shepherds, to be motivated like we're called to in this text, uh, to be ready to suffer, and even to rejoice in the privilege of following in our chief shepherd's footsteps. Bless your people by giving your people faithful leaders, faithful shepherds. We pray this for your glory. We pray it through Christ. Amen.